All right, let's jump into it. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 22. So you can go ahead and hit pause and uh, read that for yourself, and then you can pop back in here after you've kind of developed some of your own thoughts. Um, so in this first one may be a little bit longer because I'm going to try to build out a little bit of the context before we jump into the actual text. And so Samuel is the last judge of the nation of Israel. And so the nation of Israel at this time was was not a kingdom. It was not like one unified nation. It was more a, a confederation. Um, there were 12 tribes that operated and kind of ruled themselves independently most of the time. They worshiped the same God. And then occasionally they would go into battle together, rallying around a judge. And so up to this point, God had freed the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. He had brought them across the Red Sea. He'd taken them through the wilderness. He provided for them the whole way, brought them to the promised land, and then said, hey, go into the promised land and defeat all of the Canaanites, all of the people that are living here, because these people worship false gods, and they have these horrible moral practices. And if you do not eliminate these people, they are going to drag you into sin. They're going to drag you into worshiping these false gods. And so the nation of Israel, per usual, uh, did not listen to God. They did not eliminate these people. And so they continued to live around these people. And, and because of that, they did get pulled into the worshiping of false gods and idol worship and, and child sacrifice and all these other horrible immoral practices. And so there's this cycle that happens over and over again throughout the book of Judges, which is right before this, um, which uh, basically what happens is these, <laughs> the nation of Israel gets pulled into sin. They get pulled into worshiping false gods. God will then send an opposing army to defeat them and to, to stir up all kinds of fear and terror in the nation of Israel that finally drives them to realize how wrong they are. And they cry out to God and say, God, please forgive us. Please save us. And so then God will raise up a judge. And then the nation of Israel will rally around this judge and, and God will empower them you know, militarily to then defeat the armies of the attackers. And the nation of Israel will be freed. And then they'll have this season of peace uh, where... They continue to worship God and everything's great until they get pulled back into sin and back into idol worship. And then the process starts all over again. And so Samuel is the judge of the nation of Israel at this time. And so Samuel had been set aside by his mother at birth. His mother was not able to have children, had, had lived her whole life in shame because she did not have a son that she was able to pass on you know, her family lineage too, and everything like that. It was a very shameful thing to not be able to have, to have children. And so um, she cried out to God and said, God, if, if you give me a son, I will devote him to you. And so God blessed her and he, he did give her a son. And so then she uh, gave him from the time he was little over to um, the priest of Israel, a guy named Eli. And so Eli raised Samuel and trained him as a priest and God anointed Samuel and, and raised him up to be the leader of this nation. And Samuel had been faithful um, his whole life in leading the nation of Israel um, until this point where he, he is now. In verse one, it says, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. He goes on to talk about his sons, Joel and Abijah, and how they are not honorable men. They've turned aside for dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. And so these are not men worth following. So it's interesting that Samuel has decided to appoint them as leaders, even though it doesn't seem like they're qualified for that. Um, it's really interesting, too, because as you look at 
Eli, the guy who raised Samuel for the most part, like he had two sons that he had tried to pass on the role of priest to, and they were absolutely wicked and, and used the, and abused their position um, for their own gain in some really horrible, disgusting ways. And, and God ended up killing them as a result of their, yeah, just their perversion of their, of justice and their position. And so you would think that Samuel would be like looking out for that and wary of that, but apparently not, which is really interesting. So verse four says, so all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. And so the big problem with this is as they're, they're calling for a king. It is not listening for what God wants from them, but they're demanding something from God. God is the king of the nation of Israel. Like all of these, these, these tribes, they rally together around worshiping their king who is over them. And so the fact that the nation of Israel is now calling out for a king, they're calling for that because they're saying, God, you're not enough. You're not a good enough king. We want a king that makes us feel good about ourselves. Um, and so they're looking at what all of the nations around them have and they, they're wanting it. And they're, you know, the, the, a king is like a military leader. A king provides stability and security. I mean, even a sense of, of prestige and power. I think as you look at a king, it, it just feels like a, a powerful, you know, militaristic force. And so there's, I think there's some status in that as well. And so this is an absolute just rejection of God, these people calling out for a king. And so I think what I can do as I read the Bible is I see things that the nation of Israel does or things that people do that are disobedient. I'm like, oh, you bunch of idiots. <laughs> just like, why are you doing that? Whatever. And I kind of just like judge them um, and kind of look down on them and be like, man, I'm, you know, I'm not like them. I don't disobey like that. You know, I would never, if I was them, I would never do that. You know, I would never call out for a king. Um, I would just let God be my king. But if you really like try to sit and empathize with these people and empathize with the nation of Israel, I think it, it makes sense what they're experiencing and why they would be calling out for a king. You know, they've seen over their, their history over and over and over again, they've continued to be attacked by the nations around them. And they're constantly living in fear that another military army is going to come in and, and cause all kinds of death and pain and havoc. And it's like, there's the idea of a king seems to provide a sense of security that they just don't have right now. And especially as they're looking at, at the sons of Samuel to step in as their leaders, they're like, Hey, these guys suck. Like I, we do not want to follow these guys. And so there's this, this very reasonable sense of sense of fear, this sense of insecurity. And so that doesn't justify then their crying out and saying, give us a, a human king. But I think it does help it make sense to us that I don't think we can just have this condemning attitude towards the nation of Israel. So yeah, it goes on, it says, verse six, it says, but when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. Um, so displeased. Displeased is one of those words that I, I try to underline. Um, it's like an emotion word. It, clearly Samuel, what has happened has elicited an emotional response from Samuel. And the word is used, that is used is displeased. And so obviously I think he's displeased because the people that he's leading are calling out 
for something that he knows is not good for them. That he like he knows that the nation of Israel already has a king, and that king is God, and they don't need a human king, and that they are just reaching out for something that they don't have out of their own insecurity. Um, but I think there's probably even more to it than that. That, I mean, what, how does this reflect upon Samuel as a leader, right? Like Samuel has been faithfully leading the nation of Israel really, really well, by the way, compared to all these other judges like Samson. And the, like, there are so many judges that were horrible, like moral people that God still used to lead the nation of Israel and to protect them, but made so kinds of egregious, like moral, sinful errors. But Samuel, for the most part, was, was a really, really, really faithful, moral, competent leader. And from the day that he was born, had been set aside to, to follow God and to, and from the time he was young, was called by God. God literally like spoke to him in, in, in dreams and like set him apart to be a faithful leader of the nation of Israel. And so Samuel's life purpose throughout his entire life has been to faithfully serve God by leading the nation of Israel. And now that he is old, now that he is, is you know, basically entering into retirement and kind of passing along the reins to the next guys, which he wanted to be his sons, the feedback that he is getting from the nation of Israel is that, hey, Samuel, we don't trust you as a leader. And we don't want to follow the decision that you've made to pass along this, you know, to pass along leadership to your sons. In fact, we don't even believe in the entire system of leadership that you have been operating under, that your, your leadership has been so insufficient. Like we are so not okay with the current circumstances that we are in, that we want to completely shift the entire system of leadership that we're operating under. We want a king. You were like, you were such a bad judge, basically, that we don't even believe in the idea of judges anymore. And we want a king. You know, like that's not what they were saying. But as, as Samuel is, is hearing this, like, what are the thoughts that are in his head as he is, as he is hearing his, his decision and his role as judge being rejected by the people that he has faithfully given his life to his entire life? How much of his identity do you think was tied up into the idea of being a faithful leader over the God's people. And so the word is displeased, this displeased Samuel, which sometimes I just think that I just, I, I read these English words that are translated from the Hebrew and I'm like, man, that just, that just doesn't feel like a strong enough word. Like I feel like Samuel would have been really wrestling with some pretty significant rejection, would be wrestling with some deep sense of, of loss and feeling of not enough and feeling, yeah, just feeling really hurt by this. And so it says he, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you. They have rejected, but they have rejected me as their King, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now listen to them but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And so God, we really get to see the character of God deeply here. Like this, again, this is something that we could blow by if we don't slow down and, and pay attention to it. But this is really, really profound and special. God sees Samuel in his rejection. 
and he steps towards him and empathizes with him. And he takes the rejection that Samuel is experiencing from him. He says, hey, Samuel, I know the stories that you could be writing in your head, that you are feeling rejected, that you feel like these people are rejecting you as a leader, that you are not enough, that you are insufficient, that you failed. But it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And so one way we see here is, is that God is, is empathizing and caring for Samuel and he cares about his feelings. He cares that this man who has been faithful his entire life is feeling so rejected and God wants to, to, to free him from that feeling of rejection. He wants to take it upon himself. But then what we also see is that God can empathize with us in our rejection. Rejection is one of the most painful parts of the human experience. There are all kinds of uh, like studies that have been done socially, like in, in, you know, scientifically, like brain science type stuff, where you can just see the impact of rejection on people. It is like our, our minds associate rejection with death. Like if, if we are rejected as a child by our parents, like that equals death. And so when we feel rejection, it is a deep, deeply painful experience. And honestly, so much of the things that we do in life and so many of the things that we pursue and the the statuses that we try to acquire and the social circles that we try to run in, so much of that is driven subconsciously a lot of the ways by our fear of rejection. The personality that we have taken on, so much of it is out of a desire to protect ourselves from rejection and to feel accepted and to feel loved and to feel like we belong. And so when we are rejected, it is a really, really painful thing. You can think about the experiences of rejection that you've had in your life. You know, how many times have you experienced painful rejections? Like, you know, maybe you were rejected from, you know, the university that you applied for, or maybe an organization that you were trying to get into, or maybe a job, or maybe you were rejected from a social circle, a group of friends that you were trying to, to get in with, or maybe rejected by a girl or by a guy, or even rejection within your family. I think it's really painful. And it doesn't even have to be like a explicit rejection. Like it can just be me desiring and putting myself out for hoping to have like a, an emotional connection with someone in my family and being, and you know, them just not even being there. So many of us carry wounds and hurts from our fathers and mothers, you know, you know, siblings that as, as we've tried to have these emotional connections and they just haven't been there. And that, that feeling of rejection is, is really, really powerful, really, really significant. And so God also feels rejection. God is the one who is ultimately worthy of acceptance and belonging and love. And yet he has been rejected. <laughs> and even what he says here is, as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, they've been forsaking me. He's like, from day one, I've been ridiculously faithful to the nation of Israel. And yet they have continued to reject me. They have continued to turn away from me as if I am not enough for them. And so God can empathize with us in our feelings of rejection. Jesus is the ultimate example of experiencing rejection so that we don't have to. When we see what Christ did on the cross, we are so worthy of rejection by God because of our rejection of God, because of all the times that we've turned away from him and turned to our sin and we haven't trusted him and we've allowed our insecurities and our fears and the things that we want to, to trump our desire to glorify him and to serve him, we deserve ultimate rejection from God for that. And yet Christ, he came and he lived a perfect life 
that was absolutely worthy of being accepted and loved by everyone. And yet he allowed himself to be rejected by the Jews and rejected by the Romans and rejected by everybody. And then he was stripped naked and put on a cross. He was beaten. He was made fun of. He was mocked in three different languages. He had a crown of thorns mockingly put on his head. And then he was forsaken by God. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God turned away from him in that moment and rejected God, or and God rejected Jesus in that moment. And Jesus took that so that we would not have to be rejected by God. And so in this passage, what we see is God, another example of that, a really special example of God saying to Samuel, hey, you have not been rejected. I have been rejected. Let me take this rejection, this feeling of rejection from you because it is me that they have forsaken and not you. And so then it goes on. Um, Samuel passes along the words of the Lord to the people of Israel. And basically he tells them all of the things that a king is going to do to manipulate and take advantage of them because uh, a human king is a human and he's broken and he's flawed and he's not going to be a faithful, perfect ruler. And so naturally what happens when you have a human who is ruling over you is you are going to be hurt and broken and taken advantage of. And so he lists out these things such as he's going to take your sons and make them serve in his chariots, serve with his chariots and horses. He's going to take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. And so he goes on and on. And so Samuel's like, hey, listen, a human king will never measure up to God, the perfect king. Are you sure that you want this? Because one day you will cry out for relief from the king that you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And so, and this proves to be true because obviously they do end up getting a king. Saul ends up being the king that they ask for. And as we read first and second Kings, what we see is over and over and over again, kings prove to be unfaithful and to be manipulative and hurtful and taking advantage of the people of Israel. And so exactly what Samuel warns the people of ultimately ends up coming true. Verse 19, it says, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us in battle. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it to the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. So that's devastating. Um, That is something that I never want to be true of me. I never want God to adjust his plan to accommodate for my plan. That it just shows how, how much our perspective can be skewed by our fears, by our insecurities, by the, the circumstances around us, by the things that we want. We just don't have the same perspective that God has. And so I know that I can do this. In this season, I've been incredibly frustrated. Like I left my home thinking that I was going to be gone for two weeks. And six months later, I'm still, I mean, I'm sitting in a living room of just some friends that like, I don't live here. And I've got a suitcase that I packed for two weeks and, you know, I'm 8,000 miles away from my home. And this is not what I wanted my life to look like right now. And I have all of these frustrations about why is God doing what he is doing? Why is this his plan? This plan sucks. I have a better plan. You should follow my plan. But yeah, this passage has been really, really helpful for me as I've read it today. I'm like, man, I need to be willing to hold my plan loosely. I don't need to be all frustrated 
and demand that God adjust his plan to my plan because ultimately his plan is better than my plan. Even if it hurts right now, even if it's frustrating right now, even if it's just doesn't make any sense and there's all this chaos and confusion, ultimately he's good and ultimately his plan is better. And so I think I need to take a step back and have some perspective and trust God with his plan. So what about you? What are you taking away from this passage? Obviously, I, I pointed out some of the things that jumped out to me. There's a lot more here. I think one of the things I'd encourage you to go back to is, is what have your experiences with rejection been? Have you really sat with those feelings of rejection or have you, have you stuffed them? How have you tried to accommodate for the feelings of rejection that, that you've had? Have you tried to cover them over with just some, some other pursuit that makes you feel better about yourself? Or have you allowed God to sit with you in that rejection? Have you allowed him to cover over your rejection, to be your source of significance and value and worth and belonging? Yeah, he wants to be there with you in that rejection. And he's, he's experienced way more rejection than you ever will. And he wants to take that feeling of rejection from you. And then, yeah, what do you trust God with his plan, especially in this, in this chaotic season where there's so many missed expectations and it feels like there's so much that has gone wrong. And there's all these things that we probably wanted to see happen that are not happening in the midst of all this COVID-19 chaos. You know, what do you want from God? Are you willing to sacrifice that? Are you willing to let go of that for something that he has that's better for you? Um, what are the things that you're gripping and holding on to that maybe you're not allowing him to take from you? So anyways, that's, that's today. So I'll, uh, yeah, talk to you guys tomorrow.